10 and 13, Hebrews 10 and then chapter 13, as we continue to consider what it is that we are restored in Christ to the office of prophet and priest and king. Hebrews 10, we want to read a verse 19 to the end of the chapter and then to turn to chapter 13. Hebrews 10 at verse 19, God's holy word. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing and insulted the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days in which after you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with suffering partly while you were made a spectacle both by reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. For you had compassion on me in my chains and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. Therefore do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith, but if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. And then to chapter 13, a smaller section, Hebrews 13, verse 8. Verse 8 through 16, Hebrews 13, verse 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be carried about with various and strange doctrines, for it is good that the heart be established by grace, not with foods which have not profited those who have been occupied with them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. 
Therefore, Jesus also that he might sanctify the people with his own blood suffered outside the gate. Therefore, let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. Therefore, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. But do not forget to do good and to share. For with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. Finally, if you'd open the Forms and Prayers book to the Heidelberg Catechism, to page 213. Heidelberg Catechism, if you're visiting with us, is one of the three summaries of the Bible that we use for teaching and testifying to Christ. Heidelberg Catechism at this point is expounding on the language of the Apostles' Creed, namely the title of Christ, which means Messiah or anointed one. And I want to read what we looked at Sunday night, question and answer 31, and then our focus this morning is question and answer 32. But question 31 says, why is Jesus called Christ, meaning anointed? And the answer is because he's been ordained by God the Father and has been anointed with the Holy Spirit to be our chief prophet and teacher who fully reveals to us the secret counsel and will of God concerning our deliverance. And he's been anointed to be our only high priest who has delivered us by the one sacrifice of his body and who continually intercedes for us before the Father. And he's anointed to be our eternal king who governs us by his word and spirit and who guards us and keeps us in the deliverance he has won for us. And turning the page then, if he's called Christ, you're called a Christian. Question 32, but why are you called a Christian? Because by faith I'm a member of Christ, and so I share in his anointing. I'm anointed to confess his name, to present myself to him as a living sacrifice of thanks, to strive with a free conscience against sin and the devil in this life, and afterward to reign with Christ over all creation for eternity. And there's where we focus this morning. Let's ask for the Lord's blessing, shall we? Father in heaven, we bow to ask for your spirit to give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Let your word be declared truthfully and give to us the gift of faith that we might grow up into Christ. In his name we pray, amen. Congregation of Christ, if we could take a time travel machine back to the Garden of Eden this morning, I think we would find ourselves with tears running down our cheeks, to behold the goodness of God and what he made us to be in the beginning. You know, when we think about prophet, priest, and king, we can think about our calling like we're doing this morning. We could back it up and think about Christ as prophet, priest, and king as we did Sunday night. We go back further to the Old Testament and think about prophets and priests and kings. But to understand this all, you really have to go back to the Garden of Eden. Because as you look at the image bearers God formed... You notice in the story of creation, there's a kind of pattern that the first man emerges in terms of his work and assignment as a prophet, priest, and king. In the image bearer, in male and female, as God made them, they already are holding together in their calling this threefold office of prophet and priest and king. We live in a world, of course, where many people wonder, is there any purpose to life? What, is there anything for us to do? Does life have any meaning? 
Those questions were not asked in the Garden of Eden, right? Life, human life had a, had a, had a glorious dignity and value as it was assigned by God. Adam's life was tremendously full of honor and worth and purpose. And Adam was made to be a true prophet. What does a prophet do? A prophet receives the word of God and then speaks the word of God, and Adam did. His was a task to, to name the animals. His was a task to tell his wife and, and his children to come, the things God had told him. Adam was a priest. What does a priest do? A priest offers to God praise. Adam was to lead in one sense all of creation, all of the animal world, all of the world, to represent and to bring before God to express praise. And Adam was a king, that's very clear, right? He had dominion, was given dominion over all things to rule in the name of the Lord. One theologian beautifully summarizes that reality of kingship. Let me quote him. He says, Adam was in his own sphere a miniature reflection of what God is to the whole created cosmos. Like a father who's a gardener, God gave his child Adam a miniature garden of his own to take care of and expand the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve and presumably their family line through the generations were to extend that garden until it filled the whole earth with beauty and order. He goes on to suggest that perhaps if there had been no fall into sin, maybe they would have discovered modern technology much sooner than we have. And then he writes, but in any event, Adam was king. Authority on earth was given to him, and he was to express it lovingly, creatively, as creation's prophet, priest, and king to the ends of the earth. If we would weep at the wonder of God's goodness and what he made us to be, then if we were in the Garden of Eden, we, of course, would, would weep over the treachery that we haven't been given such dignity and honor through it all way, betrayed such glorious love. And yet, as we began to see last week, God did not abandon us, but he sent his own son as the true prophet now, who speaks to us the truth and tells us the way of salvation. As the the only high priest who offered himself on the cross, the sacrifice for our sins. And as the glorious king who has gone to battle against the enemy Satan, has won the victory, and who reigns over us. And now, because of Christ's saving work, we have been restored to dignity. We, as Christians, share in the Christ. He is Christ, the anointed one. And now we are little Christs. The spirit of Christ is poured out upon us. And we are anointed prophets and priests and kings. And we have to renew that sense of calling daily, don't we? We have to be refreshed in this reality. And I chose the book of Hebrews here to read because because these people in the book of Hebrews were, were growing weary. They had suffered before, now they're beginning to suffer again for the gospel, and some of them were giving up, and others were tempted to give up. And and the call of the book of Hebrews is persevere. Remember who Christ is, and then remember who you are, and press on to the end. Be refreshed daily in the sense of your calling. It doesn't matter this morning whether you're nine years old or 90 years old, whether you're a boy or a girl, a man or a woman, whether... You change diapers or run a multi-million dollar business. In Christ Jesus, there's a dignity to life. There's a calling. There's an office. There's an assignment. There's a task. 
and it fills life with meaning. Let's think about that this morning. Let's think about God making us for his glory and enjoyment. First of all, our prophetic confession we consider. Our prophetic confession. I remember when I started in the ministry, I would be nervous sometimes thinking, I don't know if I'm going to have anything to say on Sunday. And maybe you've had that. You're going to speak to somebody about the Lord, maybe, your neighbor, or you're going to teach a Sunday school class, and you wonder, what will I say? But the reality is that we're always speaking. We are always speaking. Whether or not we have a YouTube channel or a podcast, or whether or not we sport a bumper sticker or a tattoo, we, we're always speaking, all of us. We are by nature prophets. We can't help but speak. But the question is, what are we speaking? We were made to labor in the truth. But the lying serpent came into the garden, and we exchanged the truth for a lie, the lie that if we sinned against God, we would not die, but we'd be fulfilled, right? That's the, that was the promise of Satan. If you eat of the fruit, the forbidden fruit, you will not die, but you will truly begin to live. And instead of going to war against that lie and speaking the truth, we swallowed the lie and we became lying prophets. The world is filled with lying prophets. I don't have to give you any illustrations of that. But Jesus Christ came. And he is the truth. And he spoke the truth. And he uncovered our sin. And he revealed to us the Father. And he told us the way of salvation. And by his truth, he's rescued our lips and our hearts. Put a new spirit within us to speak the truth. To confess the truth. To confess Jesus Christ. Now it's not easy to be a confessing Christian, is it? To be a prophetic Christian. Because our our sinful nature wars against us. The world fights against us, seeks to intimidate us. Satan seeks to deceive us with his lies. The book of Hebrews, as I said, was written to those who were tempted to turn back. They were becoming uncomfortable in their confession. It was costing them family and friends, maybe jobs, businesses. It was not fun to be a Christian when all your family were Jews Christian boys and girls did not have a good time at school with Jewish boys and girls or in the neighborhood, were not accepted. Christians were perhaps not invited to their family gatherings, their Jewish family. They were ostracized. And they've been through so much of this before, he says. You suffered before, you lost possessions, some were imprisoned, and now it's coming back. Some of you are tempted to give up. But the writer of Hebrews says what in chapter 10? Verse 32, after he calls them to recall their former days, what you have suffered, he calls them to think about their better and enduring possession in heaven. Verse 34, he tells them, verse 35, don't cast away your confidence, it has reward. But back in verse 23, he says, Hebrews 10, 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. Hold fast the confession. You know, the prophets in the Old Testament, when they were persecuted, it was hard. It wasn't to hold fast the truth. Right? When a king tells Jeremiah, don't say we're going to be judged. Don't say the enemies will come. Don't say that. What will you do? Let's hold fast our confession. Don't give up. It's our calling as God's people to speak the truth. 
First of all, we have to speak that truth to our own hearts, don't we? We have to learn to preach to our own souls, right? When we're tempted to grumble, to say, praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. When we men are tempted to look at lustful images, to become entranced there, to remember, yes, yes, her lips drip honey, but her feet lead to hell. We need to know these things. We need to speak these things. When we're tempted to selfishness, to hear the calling of Philippians 2, to let this mind of Christ be your mind, this attitude of humility, a Savior who washed feet. We need to speak and preach the truth to our souls. And then we need to speak that truth in our homes. Fathers especially need to speak the truth to their wives, need to speak to their children. Mothers as well, and wives. The world is always speaking to our children. There's so many voices, lying prophets in the world, and we're to speak the prophetic truth. We need to speak the truth within the church, right? The writer of Hebrews is telling them that you're not going to survive as a church unless you engage the prophetic task in the assembly of God's people. And so he says to them, verse 24, let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some. Some are not coming to church anymore. But exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. You're only going to survive, he says, if you speak the truth to one another. Encourage each other in the ways of Christ Jesus. It's a blessing as an on Lord's days to to be together, to refresh each other with words of truth. Some of you maybe work beside unbelievers all week long and you hear the name of God profaned and you hear lies being told about the purpose and meaning or lack of meaning of life, but you come to the assembly of God's people and here you find truth speakers. And so we shouldn't just run off after church, should we? Because then we won't be able to exhort each other. And we shouldn't stay away from worship assemblies because then we won't be able to be encouraged. When we're not here or when we won't give ourselves time to God's people, then we miss out and we rob our brothers and sisters of the encouragement they need. We are to be a prophetic assembly But then we're to be prophets to the world, of course. What a great task. I was very encouraged at the missions conference in near mid-America this past few days. It's so good, isn't it, to think and to pause about this kingdom of Christ that's advancing and to hear stories about those who are deeply engaged. There's a pastor there who has slowly come to the Reformed faith. He just embraced infant baptism. His, his church is thinking about, in fact, joining the United Reformed Churches. But this church has sent out dozens of missionaries, many to hard places, trying to reach those who have no Bible in their language, no preacher in their language. And they've begun an institute, training up people for this work. But to hear these stories... It's a refreshing thing to remember this kingdom of Christ is advancing on the earth. We want to send forth preachers. And we want to be, each of us individually, don't we, ready to give a reason for our hope and to remember what what the apostle says to believers in, in the letter to the Colossians about making the most of the opportunities that God has given to us. Remember these words in Colossians 
chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, walk in wisdom towards those who are outside, redeeming the time. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. Redeem the time. Buy up the time. Don't let opportunities just walk past you, but use them for the Lord with whatever abilities or gifts God has given you. He hasn't given everyone the same, but use them. Pray for them. Pray to speak boldly for Christ. Now, living like prophets in the world is not easy. Elijah, remember when he faced the persecution of Jezebel? He ran out into the, the desert. You remember that? In 1 Kings chapter 19, and he said to the Lord, just take my life. I'm done. And he would later say before the Lord, I alone am left. There's no prophets but me. But you remember what happens in 1 Kings 19? He says, it's enough. Now, Lord, take my life. He lays down and he sleeps beneath a tree. And then an angel touches him and says, arise and eat. And he looks and there by his head was a cake baked on coals, a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. Angel came back a second time, touched him, said, arise and eat because the journey is too great for you. So he arose and ate and drank and he went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights as far as Horeb, the mountain of God. This morning we come to... We come to a meal of refreshment, don't we? We, we come to a banquet for prophets. We come as, as those who often failed our prophetic tasks. We've been silent when we should speak. We've spoken of things we should not have spoken, and we should have spoken of Christ. But today we come to a banquet where Christ would strengthen us and give us food that we might go in the power of the Lord. And we need that meal. But secondly, this morning we are called... Not just a prophetic confession, but to priestly consecration. Priestly consecration. The, the second part of our office. In the garden, we were, we were called to consecrate our lives to the Lord. Adam was to dedicate himself to God and to say, I am all yours, all of my heart and mind and soul and strength. I'm yours, Lord. And he failed. So we fail. But then came the Lord Jesus Christ, the true man, the God-man. And he said, here I am to do your will, Lord. Here I am. And he went so far as to yield up his body on the cross and to be both the priest and the sacrifice, offering himself for our sins in perfect obedience to his Father, satisfying God's justice that we might be reconciled to God. He paid for our rebellion. He secured for us new hearts, new wills, a new holiness, and a new opportunity to be priests. And now we're priests, and we have sacrifices to offer, and it's, it's not the atonement sacrifice we offer. We do not suffer. We do not give in order to pay for our sins. Christianity is not a religion where you need to bleed a little to make God happy with you. That is the religion of the prophets and priests of Baal where you slice yourself and dance around in order that the blood spilt might appease the gods. But that is not Christianity. The gospel is that Jesus Christ bled once and for all. If you serve Satan, he demands atonement. He demands appeasement. He demands your blood. But God doesn't. Not in the sense of payment for sin. But he does ask of you your life, your whole life. 
Love so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my soul, my all. You know the words of Romans 12, right? I appeal to you, brothers, and in view of all these mercies, Romans 1 through 11, I appeal to you in view of what Christ has done for you. Offer yourselves living sacrifices to God, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. A life consecrated to the Lord. Is your life, as you think about it this morning, is your whole life, all that you are and all that you have, is it laid upon the altar of sacrifice? So listening to that pastor I mentioned earlier talk about, they just sent off a young couple. Actually, the, the lady that was going off, the, the wife, was, was the daughter of one of the elders, sending them off across the world to the mission field. He was talking about the, the weeping, right, of, of the, the parting, right, and saying goodbye. The cost to leave family, go to the mission field. But is it, is it only for missionaries? Offer, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. That's your priestly work. Not allowed to keep anything back. Not allowed to keep back apart for yourself. You're not, you're not allowed to say this much, Lord, but not this. Called to come to the altar and to lay our life upon it and say, Lord, I'm all yours. And I'm glad to say that, Lord, because before Christ Jesus, I couldn't say it. I was enslaved to myself, enslaved to my sin, enslaved to Satan. But Jesus Christ has opened the way that now I can, I can present to you an acceptable sacrifice, my life. And that's my joy because I share in the anointing of Jesus Christ who's opened to me that privilege again, that joy again. And that's the, the great paradox, isn't it? That everyone who thinks that by keeping back they'll find life actually loses life. And those who give their life find life. And so we're called to that. Maybe that begins in the worship service. And Peter says that you're a, a spiritual priesthood now to offer up sacrifices of praise to God. Which are acceptable to him through Christ. Our worship service is not a spectator sport. It is the work of the priests, you, performing your priestly duties. Right? The writer of Hebrews says in chapter 13, verse 15, to offer up a sacrifice of praise, that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Bring your songs, bring your prayers, bring your worship to God. And then he goes on in verse 16 to say, don't neglect sharing what you have with such sacrifices God is well pleased. And boys and girls, isn't it wonderful to know that, that even a small gift in the offering or a small act of kindness to someone after the worship service is, is worth something in the sight of Christ Jesus, who sanctifies our gifts, who rejoiced over that humanly small gift of the widow who gave all she had. And you see, it's this doctrine called the priesthood of believers that that really changed the world, right? Because, because leading up to the Reformation, there was this two-tier Christianity. You could be an ordinary Christian who farms and who, 
who raises children, or you could be a super Christian who goes off to the monastery. And the reformers said, that's nonsense. Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. And that changed the world because suddenly now there was a way to farm for the glory of God. There was a way to do dishes for the glory of God. Every calling God gives is sacred. From diapers to dishes, from framing to farming, from eating to sleeping, from working to playing, everything can be offered up as a sacrifice of praise to God when done by faith according to his word and for his glory. And we grow weary in that. But the writer of Hebrews says that you have an altar. Hebrews 13.10, we have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. And so he's saying those who are still bound to the tabernacle. Now, it's become a, a, a false Judaism because it's, it's an embrace of, of some Old Testament laws while rejecting the Christ who has come. And those people are still bound to Judaism to, to that old way when Christ has come, they do not have a right to eat of the altar we eat from. And what is that altar? It's the cross of Jesus. By believing on Christ, we partake, we eat, we are refreshed by our Savior. And the means of grace are not empty. The preaching of the word and the sacraments are ways, the main ways in which Jesus Christ communicates his life to us and supplies us with grace to offer ourselves a living sacrifice. None of us have it in us to give up our life and go to the mission field. None of us have it in us to surrender our whole life to Christ in the daily place to which Christ has called us today. But it's only as Christ lives in us, it's only as we're united to him, it's only as we share in his anointing that there is power to do this and the grace to say, Lord, I love to do this. Here I am. I've come to do your will. Should have been Adam's response in the garden. Adam, where are you? Here I am. I've been laboring in your garden, Lord. But now in Christ, the joy of that calling is restored. That we may consecrate ourselves to the Lord. But finally, we're involved with a kingly conflict. This third aspect, prophets, priests, and kings. Kings. Again, Adam was to have dominion, and he was supposed to keep the garden. But he let the snake come in, and he failed to throw the devil out. And he failed to fight for his soul and for his wife. But Jesus Christ came and he took care of the serpent, didn't he? Crushed his head. Overcame the evil one. The author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And therefore, the writer of Hebrews says, you are receiving a kingdom. A kingdom. That cannot be shaken. Now, we must guard against all forms of Christian triumphalism. If you just believe on Jesus, you have victory and you'll have a healthy, wealthy, happy life. Well, it wasn't so for the Apostle Paul, was it? Beatings, imprisonments. It isn't so for these Hebrew Christians. Sufferings, afflictions. But. But there's a victory to be enjoyed at last, eternally, when we have fought here below. 
Therefore, strengthen the hands that hang down and the feeble knees and make straight paths for your feet, Hebrews 12. Pursue holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Pursue holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. You can understand Esau. Sinning in regard to food. How many of our sins aren't related to food? Grumbling about lunch, grumbling about supper. Many of our sins aren't related to physical pleasure that we want and want now. But Esau was short-sighted. He was unwilling to fight the good fight. He, he caved in. He was a coward. He gave it all up so he could indulge his stomach. Christ says in Hebrews, don't give up. You're receiving a kingdom. You're receiving a kingdom. So fight for it. Stay faithful. War against sin. Throw it out of your heart. In fact, the Catechism says it so well. It says we are to strive with a free conscience against sin and the devil in this life. To strive with a free conscience. Isn't it wonderful in the book of Hebrews here to say, uh, chapter 10, verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. You can't fight the good fight if if you have an evil conscience. You can't fight the good fight if you have a guilty conscience. Need to be cleansed. Need to repent of our sin. Need to say sincerely before the Lord, I'm on your side. Need to believe on Christ that He's won the victory. I'm not a loser. I can't lose. He's already won. Jesus Christ has already won. If I'm on Him's side, I'm I'm more than a conqueror, Paul says in Romans, right? But by the power of Jesus, as I share in his anointing, I must fight. It's a battle for me to engage. It's a conflict in which I must participate. But all of this through Christ, as the Lord's Supper reminds us this morning, this table. This table before us this morning testifies that where we failed as prophets, Christ has succeeded. Where we failed as priests, Christ has been victorious. And where we've retreated from battle and, and, and fallen into the hands of the enemy, Christ has come and won the victory. And this meal is saying to you, you have union with Jesus Christ. You eat and drink of Jesus. The life of Christ, the whole Christ, body and soul, God and man who died for your sins, this life of Christ flows in you. Apart from me, you can do nothing but with me in you, Christ says. And there's grace to be a prophet, a priest, and king, and to do it cheerfully and willingly and delightedly, knowing it's a privilege. This meal is about union with Jesus, our victor, the one who's spoken truth to our souls and still does, the one who died for us and still intercedes for us as our high priest, and the one who won the victory over Satan and, and still fights today for the good of his church. Let no one say that life has no meaning. Not for the Christian. That glorious dignity God gave to Adam in the beginning is restored to us in Christ. 
It's not a dignity the world will recognize, right? The world doesn't see you walking around in a crown or wearing the mantle of a prophet, robed in some glorious vestments of the high priest. Paul says we look like sheep led to the slaughter. But in the eyes of God the Father, all those united to Christ are glorious prophets and priests and kings. Are you clear on the purpose of your life? Has your life become about you, all wrapped up in you? Are you able to say, here I am, O Lord, this life is yours. Not one part of it, not one day of the week, not a little bit of my money. Everything I am, everything I have, I lay it before your face. I am yours. I exist for you. I was made to glorify you and to enjoy you forever. And in Christ, that honor is restored to me. Take these truths to your heart and preach them to yourself. Refresh your heart with them. And don't listen to the lies of the evil one. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for Jesus Christ, our true prophet, our great high priest, our eternal king. And that we should get to share in his anointing. What an honor. Father, remind us of who we are. Help us to act like who we are, to live a life worthy of the gospel. And Lord, as we know, we have failed, every one of us, in every aspect of our office. So we are thankful for a banquet you set before us in which you are pleased to pledge us the forgiveness of all of our sins and the new life in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.